Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We ask that you would take a moment and reflect on the context in which this message was given. We are a new church serving in neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Here we are seeking to practice the way of Jesus together, joining God in His renewing work. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We are not perfect people, and we do not have all of the answers. We believe these teachings are formational to our lives as we seek to become more like Christ and love people in these neighborhoods. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more information at DesertCityChurch.com. There is a story that we find in the book of 1 Samuel. And Samuel, who's getting of age in in this uh, chosen people called Israel, who's the leader in it, is appointing his sons as the judges, as leadership in Israel. And they go away from Samuel's ways. They, They are leading in a different direction, and it's not necessarily the best results. And so the elders of Israel get together with Samuel, and they say, hey, Samuel, Um, Your sons, your boys, they're not doing such a hot job, and and we think that we need a king to judge us. And Samuel gets very, very angry. He goes back to God, and he's like, God, do you hear these idiots? What what is going on in Israel? They want a king. And God says to him, he says, it's not you they're rejecting. It's me. They're rejecting me as their king. But go back, tell them what it's like having a king, and then if they still want a king, they get to have a king. And so Samuel goes back to the elders, and he says, guys, listen, I forgive you, got angry, a little short with you. Let me just explain this, and then you'll understand you won't want a king, you want God as your king. So if you have a king, he's going to take all of your possessions from you, he's going to rule over you, and it's not going to be pretty. We're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Give us a king. And so they get a king. Here's the reason why I think the elders were so led to wanting a king, a physical, tangible king in the flesh. Because when they looked around at the other nations and the other kingdoms that were rising up in the world, and they were looking at their own kingdom, and they were assessing it and saying, man, we are small in comparison. We could have an empire like them. We could have a kingdom like they had. If if we just had what we're missing that they have, which is a king. Not a cerebral or or ethereal king that reigns on high but, but isn't down here on earth. We need a physical king that will lead us. You see, Israel throughout the Old Testament dealt with an identity crisis. But the problem is they didn't know how to properly address the crisis. First, they wanted to answer their identity crisis by asking what they were. They looked around them and they saw kingdoms that were mighty, that were ruling over other kingdoms, and they had these mighty kings. What if we could be that? What if we had that kingdom? They tried to answer who they are, but by what they were. 
Secondly, throughout the Old Testament, uh, we see that the Israelites, when they would want to go to a king that wasn't God, and in fact, other gods that weren't the God, God would allow for them to go in that direction. And when they did so, usually it ended up with them being conquered by one of these other kings and then being brought into exile or brought away from their home that they knew so well. And we see these literal laments throughout the Old Testament, these words where they cried out to be home. If I could just be home, if I could be in Jerusalem, if I could just be there, that would fix everything. The second thing that Israel did in the midst of their identity crisis is try to answer who they are by where they were. They try to answer who they are by where they were. If I could just have a king, if we could fix the what, then everything would be okay. If I could just go home, if I could just be where I wanted to be, where I planned to be, where my heart is, then everything would be okay. This isn't just a problem for Israel, it's a problem for us, but in the midst of of Israel's story, and I believe in the midst of our own lives, we see these words spoken that speaks to this identity crisis, not answering what or where, but answering who. In the midst of the Old Testament, in the narrative of Israel, we find the book of Proverbs, a book of wisdom. And its authors, one that we primarily know as Solomon, writes these words to, to probe to who we are. In the midst of Israel asking what and where, Solomon asked who. As you read from chapter 1 onward through the end of Proverbs, every single verse points back to who. Who are you? Not defined by what you are or where you are, but who are you? This book of Proverbs is a deep calling inward. In fact, I would say wisdom's call is not just forward, but it is inward. We think of a calling of heading in a direction, but many times it's not about the place we're trying to arrive to, but it's the assessment of oneself to question, who am I at this moment? that we begin to really deal with this identity issue. Proverbs wisdom speaks into our lives to question who we are, not what and where. And as we start digging into these verses and we start reading the wisdom of Solomon and assessing ourselves, we begin to dig deep inward. And if we begin to break our ribs apart and expose our hearts, it begins to reveal to ourselves where we really stand. Like a mirror, we read Proverbs and it reflects to us, letting us know what's really going on. And this isn't just surface level, but this is actually when we start digging in deep. When we look at the actions of our lives, we see these plants that sprout up. The question isn't really, what are those plants? But the question is, what are the roots? What is it a result of? Where is it coming from? It's not surface level issues typically, but there's something much deeper. And I think what, what's happened in many of our lives 
in this idea of assessment and, and looking deeper is that we haven't been asked the right questions. One of the first questions I really recall in life, and maybe you were this as well, but even as early as kindergarten or preschool, people asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And obviously the answer was ninja, astronaut, NFL star, which most of those came true. But when, when we take that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? We start out on the wrong path by asking what. Defining what we do as who we are. And our pursuit from a very early age becomes, if I could just become this, if I could just become a doctor, if I could just become a teacher, if I could just become a ninja, these sort of questions of what begin to probe us and take over our sensory functions. It becomes to take over our focus. Our whole track is defined by that. And let's say that you do end up becoming a successful version of what that was. Well, as soon as you get there and you say, I am now this great position, the question becomes, well, where do you see yourself in five years? Well, I just got here. Can I just enjoy being what I am? No. Where do you see yourself in five years? I was recently asked that in an interview, and I answered by telling them, I have no idea, which is probably not a good way to get a job. I, I told them I could see myself in a lot of different places, and I was even honest, and I said, it may not even be at this company. However, I know over the next five years, I have a great opportunity to focus on who I am, to take advantage of lessons learned, to take advantage of learning how to be a leader, a manager. I can focus on who I am. And in five years, whether I am here or somewhere completely different, I will know that I've grown. We have to begin to wash away the what and the where and dig deep into the roots to answer the question, who? Here's one thing I would hope that you would take away this morning. The what and where you have very little control over in the end. You can work as hard as you want, and at the end of the day, you can lose control of the what and the where. Think about where you thought you would be 10 years ago and where you are now. It's probably very different. The what and the where look very different as time passes. We have little control over them. And usually it's for the better that we don't have control. But the one thing that we can never lose, the one thing that we can never get away from is the who. The what and the where change, but when you wake up in the morning, you are still there. In the darkest moments, you are still there. In the greatest moments, you are still there. You are who you are. You cannot divorce yourself. You can leave the what, you can leave the where, or the what and where can leave you. But you can never leave yourself. The who will always remain. So why do we not see it as much more valuable than the what and the where? No matter your circumstances, you have to live with 
yourself. You have to live with the who. And a lot of times other people do too, so for their sake, please focus on the who. Hey, Libby. Um, <laughs> we have to focus on, on the who, which is an important reminder to myself. And so I would ask you to consider this. How many times in the morning do you wake up thinking, what do I have to do today? Where do I have to be today? And how many times have you asked, who do I need to be today? Who am I going to be today? How many times have we started off our morning with the question, who? How many times have we broken open the rib cage and looked at our heart in the morning, took assessment, and asked, man, who do I need to be today? We get so focused on the what and the where, we can lose the focus on who. And in the book of Proverbs, this is a wake-up call to not only Israel, but to us. And the way that, that uh, Solomon probes to us the, this question of who is by using this vehicle of the heart. In fact, the only book that mentions the word heart more is Psalms. And that's because we know that David is like the ultimate emo uh, the Bible, the guy has all the feels, like it is throughout the book. But Solomon himself follows up with his greatest hits with 78 times within the book of Proverbs. And remember, it's shorter than Psalms. He uses the word heart. One of my favorite passages where he uses heart is found in Proverbs 4, verse 23. It says this, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your who. For everything you do flows from it. Jesus actually agrees with Solomon. Matthew 15, verses 19 and 20. This is a verse I actually used last time I was up here, but I want to rehash just because I believe that Jesus connects well with this message. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Essentially saying, what you do with your hands is not as important as what's inside. Who you are. What is festering. What are the roots deep down in your heart? What are your struggles? Now when we assess our actions and we look at our lives and we try to answer that question, who, a lot of times we say, well, I'm kind of just an angry person in general. Or, or maybe it's more specific. Well, I, you know, my kid left that dang Lego, Lego on the carpet one more time last night, and I stepped on it, and I blew up. And it can get as specific as that. But when we assess ourselves, we, we have to realize it's not so much about the individual actions but it's looking at where those actions are coming from. Let me, let me ask you this. Do you know someone who is chronically angry? That when you see them every single day, you are tiptoeing around them because you don't want it to lash out at you. Whether it be in your office, whether it be in your home, whether it be a friend or family member, I think we all have someone in our lives who is chronically 
angry. If you can't think of anyone, more than likely you can go on your Facebook account right now, scroll through, and begin to see how many angry people might be in your lives. For me, it's apparently a lot, especially during political seasons. It seems like even more angry people. We have anger in our world. It, it is all around us. People are angry, and they feel justified in their anger. They feel like it is theirs to own, it is their right. And many times it's because they feel like the world is against them. And so they have this right to be angry. But when we look at anger, it's much more than black and white. It's much more than just saying anger equals hell. It is vast, it is complex. It has both righteousness and self-righteousness within it. It is a spectrum that not even goes from A to B, but goes from multiple points in multiple planes to how we can feel in the midst of it and what the just cause is behind it. In Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 22, Jesus, though, speaks very bluntly to anger, saying these words. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 22. I'll read it out loud here. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Here, Jesus simply equates anger with murder. Not a leap at all in our minds, right? Like, when we feel angry, do we feel like we're murdering someone? No, but Jesus says, in those roots down deep inside of us, when we hold this anger against someone, it is essentially placing that judgment upon them of death, of saying that they should experience death. It is the same as murder within our hearts. This is where we live a lot of times, in the midst of anger. Uh, if you can't think of someone who's chronically angry, or if you yourself are chronically angry, maybe you can relate to one of my favorite characters in TV series history, uh, Mr. Costanza. No leg room back here. Move your seat forward. It's as far as it goes. There's a mechanism. You just pull it and throw your body weight. I pulled it. It doesn't go. If you want the leg room, say you want the leg room. Don't blame the mechanism. Like that. Five blocks from the house. Sit sideways. <laughs> like an animal. Because of her, I have to sit here like an animal. Serenity now. Serenity now. What's that? Doctor gave me a relaxation cassette. When my blood pressure gets too high, the man on the tape tells me to say, Serenity now. Are you supposed to yell it? No, the tape wasn't specific. <laughs> The screen door blew off again. I told you to fix that thing. Serenity, no! And when we look at people who are angry and trying to deal with it, or ourselves, we are angry and we don't know how to deal with it. Sometimes we're just trying to treat the symptoms. And so we're yelling out serenity now and hoping that somehow serenity will then enter the situation and just fix everything. But the problem with Mr. Costanza there is not the chair, nor is it the patio door, is it? And in your lives, the problem is not the chair, nor is it the patio door, is it? 
as you dig deep into your heart, you begin to understand that there are roots that go much further than maybe even you can connect from A to B. Now, I will give this concession. There is something called hangry. It is real. It happens to all of us. We can all admit that. That's part of the reptilian brain. If, if you don't know about that, go Google it. It is a thing. You're going to try to go to survival mode, and anyone in your way is going to be destroyed. It, that's okay. I think Jesus was fine with hangry, but going back to the root issue when it's not just surface level or some chemical reaction in your brain, there is a deep-seated issue within us. Now, for some of you, you will dig deep this morning, you will find it, and you'll just cut it out and be okay and move on. You'll say to yourself, you know what? I get angry any time that a man tells me what to do. And this is not just women's perspective, men, women, people. And then you go back and you say, oh, you know what? My dad left at a very early age and then comes and pops into my life whenever he wants and tells me what to do as a child. Well, that could lead to being angry at men. You could be angry anytime someone cuts you off in traffic. I know I am. That's a good indicator to find out if you're an angry person as you drive at 8.30 in the morning on any Phoenix highway and you'll suddenly realize you're an angry person. But there can be a deep-seated root of pride, of needing to be first or top. And anytime anyone tries to take that away from you, you get angry. No matter what the symptoms are, we have to deal with the root. For others of us, including myself, we may have a ball of yarn so tangled that we can't even find where it begins. And it takes a professional to sit down with and begin to unravel it. Why am I so angry towards my spouse? It's something you need to figure out, and it's not the symptoms. It's not because they're lacking behind on doing dishes. It is something deeper. What is the root of your anger? This is the first question that we need to take into our minds and process in our hearts. Is there a ball of yarn tangled so tight you can't find the beginning? Or have you located it? And have you begun to process it? It may come back up again. Know it, identify it, call it out. Have someone else keep you accountable. Begin to process through that anger with other people even. That you may leave it behind and never have it pop its head up again. The second question I would ask is this. What does your anger produce in the world? What does your anger produce in the world? Is your anger quick-tempered? And if so, it will lead to foolish things, says Proverbs 14, 17. Is your anger slow? What does that produce in its different speeds? In Ephesians 4, 26, it says this, And your anger 
Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. We know with how this has been worded and with the rest of the narrative of Scripture that anger itself is not the sin. It is the intention of the anger. That's why Solomon in so many times says, whoa, 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 slow down. The quick-tempered are the foolish. The slow to anger are the wise. Give yourself space to understand what is happening. Is your anger justified? Typically not, but there are cases where it is. One case where we saw Jesus become angry is is a very popular passage where he came into the temple where many people were selling for their own gain and he flips over their tables. That's called righteous indignation. It's essentially to say that Jesus saw something that was opposed to his father's kingdom and so he went in and he flipped tables to get rid of it. Righteous indignation. This is not the same case when we see someone who decides in their own righteous actions to go to a Planned Parenthood facility and start shooting. This is not the same. Slow to anger. We must consider the kingdom of God and does my anger fit within the parameters of what Christ was about. If Christ's judgment was not placed upon people here on earth while he walked among us, telling us to end lives for the sake of others, telling Peter to take his sword and place it down on the ground. When we look at the life of Jesus, does it line up with our anger? And I know that seems like an extreme case, but I believe anger starts with a whisper and builds its way up to a roar. It is water that is starting to boil. We have to ask ourselves, what justice is there in our anger? And the best way to do so is the assessment of saying, is this anger selfish or selfless? Is my anger about what has been done to me or is it about what's done to others? If you want to take your anger and actually guide it towards something correctly, look at those who are oppressed, who are unjustly bound. If you want to get angry, begin to look at circumstances in our world and begin to ask why they exist. Why is it that someone can go to sleep hungry at night without being able to provide food for themselves? There is a broken system to be angry with. And the anger leads to just action. Not slaughter, but to restoration. Not to taking up the sword ourselves, but believing in redemption. That God can take all things broken and make it right. This is found throughout the book of Proverbs. It's found throughout the New Testament. It's found throughout the whole scripture narrative. I love how he uses slow to anger. It is not only Solomon who uses it. It's throughout scripture. Slow to anger. May we be wise in how we respond And I would close with this thought this morning. What 
is our response. In Proverbs 31, 26, they write this. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Wisdom leads us to kindness. Wisdom leads us to kindness. At times, it is a furious kindness. It is a kindness with fury, but it is always good. Brendan Manning tells us about this in his book, A Furious Longing, where he describes furious, and the definition of it is really more related to an intense strength. The fury of the gathering storm, as he describes it. In our anger, we feel powerful and justified, do we not? But we are also self-destructive and self-righteous. But in a furious kindness, we are still powerful and justified while restoring the world. In a furious kindness, we are still powerful and justified while restoring the world. It was God's furious kindness that continued to pursue us. And it is the furious kindness that has been placed in our hearts that should be escaping into the world. As uh, Matt comes up and we come to this time to close, um, we're going to end with this time of communion, of prayer, and I would even offer that if this morning there's someone in this space that you are holding anger against, that you would just kind of tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, in love, I, I, we need to do something. And our prayer team is here for that too. It's not going to be something where people are gawking back there looking for gossip tips of like things to spread. This is an open place. Anger happens. Brokenness happens. We can't ignore it. We have to find restoration. Maybe that's a text message that you're going to have to send. Make that a part of this time. Maybe you're going to have to make a phone call. Step out. Do it. Do not hang out in the midst of this anger. It is imprisoning you and holding you back. One last story, if you will give me the time. I'll make it quick. When I was a kid, um, I was not the best at remembering where things were. And so when someone let me borrow something, that was a bad idea, generally. <laughs> and I had a friend who had a TI-83 calculator, you know, the sweet one with the games. And he let me borrow this calculator. And uh, I, of course, lost it, because that's what young Thomas did. 